Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Keeper, while we're waiting for Linda to give us the countdown. Yes, Jeff? You know, we had a lot of response to what you said last time about souls and the energy of trauma in the soul's realm. Is that a good thing? Well, the listeners who wrote in really seemed to get the connection between us. The human and the soul, I mean, that were invested in each other. So I'd say that was a good thing. 60 seconds to airtime, Jeff. Thanks, Linda. But Keeper, what I'm seeing in the world is more and more trauma an escalation of the violence against ourselves, and I'm concerned about what that means for humanity and the soul's realm. It's interesting that you say that, Jeff. When those who wanted to control first created religions, fear of consequence was supposed to keep humans from disobedience and from violence against one another. Now, many commit violence in the name of religion, and many commit violence without any fear of consequence because they see violence as the only possible solution. They've forgotten how to create from others in a sustainable, compassionate way. 30 seconds. So the only way to end a conflict is end the life of the people who hold the opposing view? I mean, what is that? Is that ego again? Disconnect from the superego, Jeff. The part of you that understands right from wrong. That is more than that, actually. Here we go. Hold that thought, Keeper. Stand by. Cueing music. In three, two, and one. Welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio. Conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate. With tonight's host, Jeff Hendler. Hi everyone, welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio. This is another chapter of In the Soul's Waiting Room, and I'm back with my guest, the Keeper of Soul's Purpose. If you've been listening so far, you know that the topic of these conversations is always something of a surprise, that I include your questions and comments wherever possible, and that we're really emptying the ocean about why the world is the way it is right now. If you've missed any of our conversations, please go to www.thevoiceofevolution.com and you can catch up on our conversations with The Keeper and other programs there as well. So let's bring them on straight away. Welcome, Keeper. Hello, Jeff. We were talking about the program about the escalated violence in the news. and You said something about superego and understanding right from wrong. Can you say more about that? I can, yes. And it fits with the topic I'd like to bring to our conversation today. And what's that, Keeper? The dichotomy within humanity between the homeless and the hoarders. The homeless and the hoarders, eh? Literally or figuratively? Well, both actually. This idea of having a conscience is really more of a constant battle between the egos. Your id holds your desires and your impulses. The ego wants it all and more often than not gets hit with the reality that you can't always get what you want. And the superego is supposed to guide you as to what you can do about that. Set boundaries, you understand. The disconnect is in the superego, where the human throws all caution to the winds and acts out of established social or moral norms. When we talk about the hoarders of resources, you'll see this expressed there. I wonder what Freud would have to say about our superego today. Well, remember that everything is a step in the evolution of the universe. Humanity has always searched for sustaining visions and spiritual rituals and inspiring dreams. Without those, the superego needs to be recalibrated and it needs to find its own line in the sand. So, without a belief or establishment to tell us what's right... Well, sometimes in spite of a belief or establishment. True. We have to choose what's right for ourselves. Uh, That's powerful, Keeper. Thanks. 
So the homeless and the hoarders, shall we? Yes, and I'll start with the homeless in the literal sense. There are people who live without homes, and let's not continue calling them the homeless as if they were a kind of a soup. Soup? Well, you know, I'll have tomato rice soup or chicken noodle soup, a label that clearly defines the contents. Ah, so not wanting to judge those who live without homes as being all the same. Well, like any conversation about separateness, the diversity in any spectrum is always astonishing, Jeff, and when humans can't see the spectrum, or at least they choose not to, well, that's when polarity begins and grows and festers. Well, even using soup as a metaphor, there are varieties of tomatoes and the equal variety of rice. Uh, we have to start somewhere. Well, as long as you don't stop there, and like those who live without homes, the hoarders are just another part of the spectrum. So what would we call them for the sake of this conversation? Oh, I think we'll find the words as we go along, Jeff, as you humans always do. It's a mental illness, though, isn't it? I mean, the hoarders, obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, the stuff of reality TV. Well, remember when we talked about judging the human and the human always coming up wanting? I do, yes. There's a soul's wanting in a human life of hoarding. Actually, it comes from the first lens, although it's dependent on the second lens, as things often are. But before we get too deeply involved in that conversation, let me just say that this applies to the literal and the figurative meaning of the word hoarder. In a figurative sense, what happens when someone decides he or she should own the water, even though people are dying of thirst? Or because people are dying of thirst. Now you see it. And what happens when the world is starving and only a few people own the seeds or have genetically modified the seeds for reasons that only they can know? And why does the 1% keep getting richer and the 99% get poorer? Perhaps we should start with the literal and see how we translate it to the figurative. That sounds like a plan, Jeff. So, where should we start? With those living without homes? Because statistically, I believe there's something like 800,000 people living without homes in the U.S. alone. They're living in cars, under bridges, some spending nights in shelters or some kind of transitional housing, and most don't. They live on the streets. You know, and I remember reading that many of those living without homes are children under the age of 18. I don't know if you remember, but when we talked about the LGBTQ youth, there, the little research that exists cites that these kids are safer on the streets than they are in their own homes or even shelters. That's just another symptom of the inequality of our systems. Because humans are built to operate from fear. And I realize that's a gross generalization. And yet it's part of the soul's coding to have a challenge or a cheap feature, a feature that activates a fear or a need in the human, such as a be seen as that cannot be breached or an ignorance that must be kept deaf, dumb and blind. Once you understand your fear or need, you begin to understand what you're here to learn. So, when it comes to those who live without homes and homelessness... Well, they are fully expressing a feature that their souls have come to experience. Not all the same, you understand. Each is individuals. Humanity has always relied on its ignorance to keep it safe from such aberrants. Uh, you know I really don't mean aberrants, don't you? Any behavior that doesn't fit the story of being a 21st century human. So, let's start with the first lens, shall we? Though to do that, I think I'll need to start with a second lens. <laughs> That's a bit disorienting, isn't it? And yet it's the best way to approach a subject as diverse as this one. So the second lens, the environment, in order to understand the first lens, the human-soul connection. I'll use your human statistics so the listeners can check the facts if they want. Over 100 million humans live without homes, and over 1 billion live inadequately housed. And that's worldwide, by the way. And the numbers may be higher than that because you humans haven't even begun to seriously document this. There are also those who lose their shelters, for many other reasons too, due to natural disasters and political conflicts, for example. Refugees and immigrants, 
That's what you mean when you say people who lose their home due to political conflicts. They actually lose their homeland as well, don't they? Not just their homes. I'm wondering if there is a need then to define homelessness, since there are so many variables. Is it simply living without personal shelter, or is it living without dignity or peace as a human being? Well, that's a very conscious question, Jeff. Why don't we start with the cultural homelessness, meaning someone who had a home and now no longer has one. Someone who lives within a defined urban area where living without a home is considered aberrant by the systems that be. I suggest this because we could spend all our time today talking about homelessness and never get to the hoarders. Works for me, Keeper. Frankly, I'm not voting about which is more critical, and yet being without a shelter in an urban area seems more of an injustice or an equality concern. So I prefer to go with that. I agree with you, Jeff. We have to find our focus somewhere in this rather bottomless topic. So if we begin by taking a look at the statistics that suggest a cultural homelessness, meaning that if you walk down your urban street and see another human sleeping in a doorway, or seated on a curb with a sign that asks for your generosity or your compassion, or your consideration of that human's plight, what judgments are there that immediately come up for humans? Would you like to guess what they might be? Well, no, not, not really. Why no? I think it's going to prove how skeptical we are as humans about other humans. And I'll give it a try, Keeper. Just know that it's my speculation and my speculation only. So, if I give this person money, I might ask, will they just spend it on drugs or alcohol? Or is this a scam? Does this person actually have more money than I do? It's possible. If I stop to speak to this person, might I endanger my own life? What if he or she is mentally ill? What if I say the wrong thing? And then there's also some curiosity. You know, how did this person get so down and out? Or how did it happen? Don't they have any family or friends? If so, what's wrong with them? Who are these people? Are they living off the system or did the system fail them? And Keeper, I might also think, maybe this person is lazy and doesn't want to work. They're just looking for a handout. And when we see a homeless person with an animal, maybe we wonder if it's really a companion or a device to generate more sympathy. Well, that's quite a list, Jeff. It is how we keep ourselves ignorant and safe and separate. I'm sure it doesn't surprise you to learn that the more capitalistic the economy of the country, the more its humans and their government believe that personal failing is the reason for another human living without a home. Those capitalistic countries also provide less services for those humans, as you might expect, since it's their own fault, according to the government. So assuming the opposite is true, countries that aren't capitalistic should actually have less people living without homes. And they do, Jeff. In addition, governments that advocate punishment for humans who live without homes and those humans who assist them are actually perpetrators of the homeless condition, perpetrators and predators. So why are they seen that way? What I mean is people who help the homeless being fined or arrested. That's crazy. Why can't we see the vulnerability in this situation? I mean, this could be any one of us living this way, right? Why can't we extend their situation to include us and see that they really need our help? To answer that, we need to talk about those humans who live with material abundance. Would it surprise you to know that they often live with a deficit in self-worth? So what do the humans who live homeless represent to them? If I have so much and I still don't feel worthy, what would I think of others who have nothing? Shame or maybe even failure, fear, you know, that vulnerability of it happening to me. So I ignore it. Most humans aren't so open. <laughs> they say, of course, it's shameful to live on the street. Of course, it's a failure. And when they meet someone living on the street, their ego is activated and they don't know how to face those intense feelings that point back to them as being inadequate or shameful in some way. Yeah, it's that wall we keep around ourselves to protect us. 
taking a wider circle when we see something or someone on the street that we can't deal with. And it's all inside you and part of you, which is the only real reason you avoid it. And as you said, it's the fear that this could happen to you too if you aren't vigilant. Even if you're not one of the humans who avoids contact with those other humans, what's your motive for engaging? Are you doing something to feel good about yourself so that you can say, well, I gave to the needy or I talked to a homeless person on the street today? Or is it because you're truly activated to end the injustice of it all? It's rather like saving the world. Are you doing it to save yourself, meaning humanity, or because the world actually does deserve saving? Yeah, that has me thinking. You know, I read something recently that for most of us, it's unbearable to process how we got to where we are today. I mean, really process it because we've all done things we regret. And when I read that again, it shows how vulnerable we all are and how fragile we all are. Whatever our be seen as veneer tells others. We want to believe that we're all about goodness and we're, we're all virtuous, yet we're afraid to look too deeply because maybe we're not as good as we want to be seen as. What better shadow image to hold than someone living on the street, someone who's lost everything? I see what you mean. You ask yourselves, who are these humans who can lose everything if not shameful and failures? And I asked that question with the intention of answering it, Jeff. You suggested the population in the US living without home was about half a million humans, and some of the concerns about them are drug and alcohol abuse or mental illness and broken homes. Is that accurate? Well, you asked what I imagine we thought the problems might be, and those certainly come to mind, yes, at least in North America. Well, so let's stick to North America, if only because there's more data there that the listeners can check for themselves. Okay, and I imagine that number is much higher because how does anyone conduct a census of the homeless? Exactly. Humans without physical addresses are difficult to find. And it may interest you to know that approximately one-third of those living homeless are veterans of your wars, Jeff. And nearly 50% of those veterans are African-American or Hispanic. That's an alarmingly high percentage. Of you can expect that number to be higher given the challenge of counting. And that's what your official records state for anyone who cares to check the facts. It's probably even higher if you include those temporarily living in shelters. Why so high, Keeper? Well, extreme shortage of affordable housing and livable incomes and access to health care. A large number of displaced and at-risk veterans live with lingering effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. Additionally, military occupations and training are not always transferable to the civilian workforce, and that places some veterans at a disadvantage when competing for employment. So in essence, we've abandoned our veterans after they've served their country. There are some good organizations working to support them, but there are just too many veterans and wars. Now, another part of the homeless population we've already spoken about, the LGBT youth. They face social stigma, discrimination, they're often rejected by their families, and all that adds to the physical and mental strains and challenges of being without a home for them. And sometimes by choice, because as we've discussed in the past, it's, it's safer than staying at home or in the shelters. What do we know about women keeper, uh, and specifically victims of domestic violence? They have to be added to these numbers, Jeff, and sometimes they have small children with them as well. Which has to make it difficult to find work or perhaps even find a shelter in which their children are safe. Yes, one out of every four women who lives without a home is homeless because of an act of violence against her, her or her children by an intimate partner. And we must mention what you call the disabled population here too, Jeff. Those humans living with an illness or an injury resulting in their inability to fully function in the world that you've all created. You know, reflecting back on what we're talking about so far, Keeper, what I'm hearing is that we don't have a homeless problem. We have a human problem. <laughs> I'm glad you noticed that, Jeff. 
And what I'll add is that there are those who abuse drug and alcohol, who identify as LGBT, who are veterans, disabled, or victims of domestic abuse, who are not homeless. A larger population than you can imagine, actually. You can't define someone who lives homeless by that sorting that you and humans are so fond of. You must define the human issues in order to understand the homelessness. I'm with you on that, Keeper. What I get from all this is what usually keeps someone in their social structure and physical structures, too, is having the resilience and resources to endure a crisis, whether it's financial, relationship, or cultural. And if you don't have those resources in place, there is no safety net for you if you fall through the cracks or of what you call a normal life. I'm also sensing that without these resources, the cycle is difficult to stop once it starts. Yes, exactly so. While humanity wants desperately to blame the weakness of the human as a reason for that so many are living that way, those who live without homes are more similar to you than you care to admit. And they're often caught up in systemic processes that aren't really designed to help them get back to the security and dignity that most of you take for granted. It's the stories we've created or, or somebody's created. And I'm guessing that those stories keep our egos stoked and protected, right? I mean, this couldn't happen to me because I'm not dot, 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 you know, and then you fill in the blank with the thing that scares you the most, reckless or ignorant, a poor manager of money or an irresponsible employee, you know, all that and more. So with that as our context, now we're able to explore the first lens. So the spirituality, the human soul connection as a consideration for those who live without homes. Yes. And I'll begin by saying that all souls tend to spend their last human incarnations much less concerned about belongings or even culture and country. They're free of the world, even as they're in the world. And that isn't easy for most souls or humans to do. So it's important to point out that some souls do this by choice. It's rare for just any human to forsake all those material possessions you create. They are addictive after all. Well, there's your reluctant evolutionary again, Jeff, wanting to be a conscious citizen of the world. And yet deeply wanting to savor it or savor it things might be a more accurate way to position it. And Keeper, I have to ask again, I mean, can't we do both? Well, yes, of course you can, as long as the deficit mentality doesn't get the better of you. That fear of missing out on something that you believe everyone else has or enjoys. There's the real learning and growth in humanity today, you know, to understand and grow past that wanting. I see that. So these old souls are the exceptions. What about those who aren't old souls, who didn't choose a path of homelessness? Well, from a first lens perspective, if you're in it, you chose it, Jeff. Often a chief fear or obstacle has something to do with the learning or growth that comes from living without a home or living as a hoarder. Uh, we'll get to that part of the conversation shortly. Human challenges are always a way that the soul learns to express its voice, to get past the ego and to be in its divine nature. Now, before you say that this adds to the evidence that humans are nothing more than a device, Jeff. You read my mind, Keeper. Remember that homelessness exists on a spiritual level as well as a physical level. Some souls make themselves remarkably at home at the earthly realm, trading incarnation after incarnation, being in love with the physical world. You understand? I do. Other souls never really fit in, like those old souls who can easily forsake materialism for a more spiritual approach to their human lives. Of course, there are humans who do both effectively and humans who try to do both with rather less effective results, I'm afraid. The homeless and the hoarders are the polarities and there's a full spectrum that lives between the two. There are many homeless souls who never really feel at home as incarnated humans or they're adjusted to being human and can't quite get into the routine of being an earthly organism. Detached, introverted, highly sensitive, less engaged in the material or social world of the planet, 
working on the internal self rather than the exterior self. Is that really a thing, a homeless soul? They account for only a small percentage of those living without homes, Jeff. Many of them live with homes, and it's still important to mention it. Now, in all the cases we've cited, there is a soul that has experienced human trauma. I remember that you said that often part of the soul withdraws when human trauma takes place in order to keep some part of the soul innocent or untouched. Yes, I remember saying that. That traumatic experience, especially in a human's early years, well, at any age really, that can drive a withdrawal from the mainstream of humanity, a desire to sustain oneself rather than be sustained by the system because the system has already failed them. Do you see that? Betrayed by someone or something, the person trusts only him or herself. Or the natural world or the system in place. I mean, consider the United States after 9-11. Consider the traumatic events in Syria and Iraq and Lebanon and Jordan, and more recently in France and England and so on. Living with varying degrees of trauma does impact humanity on a daily basis. Deep trauma creates a deep wound in the human and some humans never recover. These humans are diagnosed with ailments like paranoia or schizophrenia or hoarding or some other issues that you call a personality disorder because only a few of you have made the human soul connection in the first place and even fewer have applied it to recovery and healing. Like you said, we diagnose the human and find the human wanting in some way. Yes, rather than look to the soul when the human acts out of context of the norms of society. But often, the mental health and associated behavior of that person requires some kind of care, or care and medication, even in the process of trying to help that person get well. What I hear you say is that we don't approach the soul at all when we're trying to heal the human. Is that it? In part, it's interesting to note that the clinical psychologists and others who work with mental illness and personality disorders are actually in communication with the soul through the human. As I said, some realize this and some understand that this is their work in the world. Others, they continue to treat the symptoms without ever getting to the heart of the matter. Well, to the soul, that is. So the soul isn't considered in the treatment. And sometimes the wound is so deep, the human doesn't stand a chance of recovery. It becomes quite an issue in the soul's realm. We've talked about memory of past incarnations, and many souls don't return to the human realm because it's not safe for them to do so. Not safe. For the soul or the humans? Well, actually both. Your world sees the impact of a soul returning to Earth with past memory all the time. What more can you say about that? Consider your dictators, those who you humans consider to be the vilest of humans. And that's all I'll say about it for now, because that would be another rabbit hole, Jeff, and we need another time for that topic. So with that limited information, there's something wrong with that story, isn't there? Tipping points, Jeff. It all comes down to tipping points. And yes, there is something wrong with that story. I sometimes wonder how much the soul realm can endure. What would happen if it reaches the limits of its endurance, Keeper? Well, we can only hold so much trauma in the energy of the world, Jeff. How much? That's the mystery that hangs in the balance right now. The soul's realm provides purpose based on the stories you humans tell. And providing more and more trauma, more and more insecurity, more and more illness, that's very taxing. So we are creating our stories and the universe provides what we create? It works both ways, I'll add. Changing your stories will change the energy in the universe and soul's purpose to support these new stories. Keeper, is there more to say here before we talk about the hoarders? Have we covered the literal and figurative homelessness? Well, there's always more to say. And so for now, let's move on to the hoarders, the literal hoarders first. Okay, sounds good. So the idea of trauma and soul's injury continues here as a theme. While those who live without homes are exposed to the world, the hoarders insulate themselves from the world. 
So one is vulnerable and the other is protected. Even though the hoarders use the material things of this world to insulate themselves from the world. There's often the pretext that the things around the hoarder are valuable. Well, sometimes this is true because the item is something that the hoarder identifies with. There's an image of self that this inanimate object holds for him or her. And it would be like throwing away a part of yourself, Jeff, to give it up. And mainly it's to keep a human safe and protected like a cocoon protects its chrysalis. That brings up an image of something raw and fragile needing a cocoon for protection. So what's the need to protect? And where does that come from? Is it a trauma? Well, it might be as simple as a poor decision that has unintended impact on the human or on other humans. A human who doesn't trust his or her decision-making process may not want to throw out the wrong thing. The activation in the anterior cingulate cortex of the brain is quite dramatic when someone with hoarding proclivity is asked to throw something out. Most humans will consider whether or not it has value, and then they'll make a decision. The decision-making process also activates that part of the brain that deals with emotions, especially loss and shame. There's a theme between the two, right? Between those who live without homes and hoarders. Shame. Yes, even if it's imagined. There's a great potential for your healers, Jeff, in understanding the anterior cingulate cortex and the insular cortex of the brain. Understanding the indecision that leads to shame and the shame that leads to indecision that leads to the need to hoard material objects. So it's a flaw in the decision-making process of the brain, which does make it sound overly simplistic. Well, how complicated does it have to be before you treat it with compassion? To find the trauma in the human and the soul, of course, and to help the human understand that its survival or penance doesn't depend on these objects and that mistakes are part of the natural order of things. Survival or penance, as in self-inflicted penance? Well, all penance is self-inflicted unless it comes from an organized religion. And even then, it's the human seeking a penance and believing that saying a few prayers will exonerate him or her from whatever sin has been committed. A sin designed by the organized religion, of course. Going out on a limb here, Keeper, uh, you've really got an opinion about organized religion, don't you? Well, you all have the power to heal and forgive yourselves as part of all that exists without explanation. If humans require a greater power than themselves to forgive and heal, well, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's unnecessary. And the call board lights up. <laughs> not really. And I'm sure we'll get a response to that from someone. And on that note, a reminder to our listeners that the Keeper doesn't take calls. You're always invited to email me, though, at jeff at voiceofevolutionradio.com or our producer, linda at voiceofevolutionradio.com. Keeper, there are professionals who work specifically with hoarders. Their businesses revolve around helping hoarders release their possessions. Care to comment on that? Another role in the spectrum of things. Compassionate healers will always explore what makes each decision a difficult one for the human who hoards. They must gain the hoarder's trust, and the human must also trust that they can let go of something, or the insecurity that was left by the trauma only deepens. Often, well-intentioned family members reach the end of their patience and threaten to take matters into their own hands. Well, that never builds trust, only more insecurity and a need to protect oneself. Keeper, anything more to say about people who hoard? I mean, I know there's always more to say. Well, we can talk about the figurative hoarders now, if you like. This brings us back to the idea of capitalism and shame. The more the figurative hoarder has, the smarter, the better, the more successful he or she is. To not have isn't even an option. It's all about how much one has. Now, before we make any assumptions about what you've just said, does this apply to everyone who's rich and successful? I mean, aren't we making them wrong for being successful? 
Well, it's not my intention to make anybody wrong, and often just stating fact adds that element of judgment, I suppose. Some humans are simply in the right place at the right time energetically, and often those humans attract more than others. Often they do act with philanthropy. They honestly don't know what to do with all that they've amassed except to share it. And then there are those who gild entire rooms in their homes with gold or buy 24 karat gold cell phones. They buy something just because they can, like a lock of Elvis's hair or hand-carved ice cubes, even a town or an island. If you want it, somebody will make it or sell it to you. Wait, I'm, I'm stuck on the hand-carved ice cubes. Is that a real thing? I mean, what's the point? Well, then you may not even be able to fathom diamond-studded bathtubs for puppies. Nope, I have no response to that. And again, what's the point? Well, that is the point, that there isn't one. Often the status symbol is something this human will never use, like a sports car that goes faster than any other car, except they never drive it. It's about the ownership, not the enjoyment. There's actually fear in not having the things that make them look successful. Conspicuous consumption, he who dies with the most toys wins, that sort of thing, you know? I don't know. And yes, I get it. So those who act philanthropically, well, there is gratitude for their abundance and compassion in their sharing. After all, how many times over can you be a billionaire? It's like building a fortress of possessions around you. Like being a hoarder, separate and protected. And with the same fear of loss or shame. We've talked about the insecurity of security, Jeff. The more separate you are, the more you need to be separate. In addition to making a poor decision or feeling shame, it's about greed. Now, I understand that even when a human suddenly has more, their spending often elevates to match their income and it keeps them in the same economic insecurity, or even worse. Yes, that's true. We need a raise in salary until we get it. Then we wonder how we ever live without it. So we began this conversation talking about those who hoard at the expense of others. And so we should talk about that now. The example you mentioned about someone buying up our water reserves when people are dying of thirst. For me, it brings to mind governments that fine or imprison people who collect rainwater. Yes, this goes back to an individual or group of humans who wish to control a population larger than itself. What can they own that everyone else needs? What can they buy that exempts them from what everyday humans might have to endure? Could it be water or oil, well, at least for now? Could it be land on which they build fortified shelters to survive an apocalypse or a pandemic? This is especially prevalent in Asian countries and Africa, South America, and the United States. Some of it's by the governments and some of it's by private citizens. It's life-threatening hoarding, Jeff. Only those in power or the billionaires have the means to survive what might annihilate the rest of the population. And they're already prepared for that event, should it happen. Which would leave us, what, a world full of billionaires and politicians? A world full of hoarders? Well, essentially... Now, there are hoarders and there are protectors. There are some who collect to protect. And protecting the land, the trees, the seeds, and the beauty of this world is so critical right now, especially the land on which the indigenous peoples reside. Much of that land is rich from the ground down, you understand, which brings me to the less life-threatening hoarding, although it comes from an apocalyptic intent, you might say. Hoarding mineral rights, the ever-profitable gold and silver or copper and uranium beneath the ground. Like mining and fracking, you mean? Well, for the most part, private citizens buy land from the ground up, and builders and investors always buy from the ground down. So if anything valuable is discovered on my land, let's say 
it really isn't my land anymore, or at least the resources become the prime directive and the land or who owns it doesn't matter at all. Well, no one really owns anything. That's all made up, you understand. It's part of the story that you've all created. And it also doesn't mean that the resources are used today, not unlike the sports car. The resources are hoarded, so when they're needed by others, someone must pay to get them. And then you determine the value and the price. Then they're playing a hunch and sitting on the resources until the world has demand for these things. But it's been done so many times in your human history. Okay, and that may be capitalism investing in the future. Isn't the same as water and food? That's life-threatening and out-and-out land-grabbing. In a world where a big food corporation can get water for free and then sell it bottled to citizens who have contaminated water, that's the dark side of the hoarding resources, right? Yes, the dark and the light side. That's good, Jeff. With 326 million trillion gallons of water on Earth, only 3% of it is fresh water. And as your population grows, water stress is becoming more and more of a reality. Do you remember when we talked about the stress of overcrowding? Well, water stress is relatively the same thing. There's not enough of it to go around. And what will the behaviors be when humans don't have enough water? I don't know, uh, hoarding, rioting? Survival behavior kicks in, yes, and self-entitlement. You have something I don't have, something I want. When I see the opportunity, I'll take it if I can't get it any other way. And that applies to those who aren't hoarding material resources. Those humans who see the things that those with material wealth have and decide that they want them too. They steal or they go into debt. They must have these things, or at least they believe that others shouldn't have them. Speaking of food and water, you should know that individuals are already hoarding water and food. Supplies of all kinds in the advent of some cataclysmic event. Food that doesn't need refrigeration or doesn't need to be cooked. Water, light sources, and batteries and guns. Always guns. Some people hoard nothing else, because with those guns, they can take whatever you've been hoarding. Consider the looting that takes place when there's even the smallest of disorienting events in an urban area. Taking back from others is a natural response in humans. Not one of our best qualities, Keeper. No, and it's the result of the to-have-and-have-not stories and systems you've created. And not to worry, anti-hoarding laws, like collecting that rainwater, Jeff, will ensure that governments can take any food or water stories that you've amassed. This is true in times of war, and it's true for any state of emergency. Martial law, is that what you're referring to? Well, consider what happens under martial law, Jeff. Civil rights and civil law are suspended. There's no freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, or freedom of speech. There are curfews, troops in the streets, and checkpoints wherever you go, and there's confiscation of anything useful, like firearms and food supplies. In some very unlikely countries, martial law may already be in effect. Frogs in warm water, Jeff. Turn the heat up slowly and they'll never know what hit them. Jeez. Systems and governments aside for the moment, consider the food giants of the world. Now, we won't name them here because you already know who they are. They are re-engineering food, they're claiming ownership of the seeds, and they're prosecuting those who try to preserve natural seeds. Remember, hoarding is often for protection, Jeff. So what happens when the whole world is starving and these food giants own all the seeds? We're screwed. Well, it's happening now. So there's still a chance to stop it. Go after your food and water first. Avoid the distractions. And there are so many distractions these days. Well, often that's the purpose of the distractor, to distract. Seriously, and we fall for it each and every time. Well, remember, you each have your triggers, your passions, 
If a system or even an individual leader can keep you all spinning from one distraction to another, that leader or system will be able to accomplish what it could never do without the distractions. So when it comes to resources, there are hoarders, and I'm guessing there are homeless too. Well, in the case of those living without homes, there are those who see their lives on earth as a stewardship, not ownership. Is that what you mean? Exactly. I don't think we really explored the other side of the resource hoarder when we talked about those who live without homes or shelter. Then let me ask you, if you can imagine an indigenous culture, not one that had to migrate for climate or other survival reasons, but a culture that's always maintained the same geographical location since humans first stood upright, how would you describe them on this spectrum from homeless to hoarding? I'd have to say they were closer to homeless than hoarder. And yet they're perfectly at home, if that makes any sense. Well, when we first talked about separateness, our conversation took us to explore the origin of the human species. And we agreed that humans are of African origin. That's where you originated, and that's where you spent the majority of your time on Earth before migration began. Evolution was slow until a sudden genetic advance was made. Humans needed to be more creative to survive what was about to happen, a climate event. They needed to speak, to travel, and to be more adaptive. Ironically, the ability to adapt environment to suit its needs also came from this time and this evolutionary leap. When humans began to migrate, you consciously chose to be without homes, seeking shelter when and where you could, and often living exposed to the elements and the predators. You know what I'm thinking? Well, I do, actually, but go ahead anyway. Okay, now I just lost my train of thought. No, okay, got it. I'm thinking that those migrating humans never knew if they made the right choice. There was no way to be in contact with those who remained. Did they survive by migrating or did they put themselves in danger? Even those who stayed, if they had survived, had to wonder the same thing. If those who migrated were still alive, if they found a better place to be, should they have gone with them and and all of that. So the storyline just gotten interesting, hasn't it? Indecision, loss and shame in your DNA as humans. It's a stretch and I'm wondering if there's anything to that. Well, there is something to that. Remember, we also talked about the migratory humans who had to fight for land or food against other humans, something that was unheard of before they migrated. And we also talked about Maslow's hierarchy of need and tribal leadership, need dictating behavior. So I'm wondering, did that first migration create the homeless and the hoarders? Well, that's a question worthy of the infinite. And what if it did, Jeff? Hmm. I don't know. I, I just think that saying that it's in our DNA is a bit of a cop out. We're evolved enough to be emotionally intelligent at this point. Okay, Keeper, hear me out. So I think it may be part of our DNA. I also think there's something else. There are messengers among us, as you said. We were talking about the LGBTQ community, and you said that. And yet I have to ask, are these humans living homeless and even the hoarders? Are they messengers in some way? And if they are? You're making me do a lot of work for these answers, Keeper. Okay, if they are, what's the message? That we should be at home on the planet by now, trusting in the generosity and compassion of other humans, trusting that there's enough? Or are we supposed to learn that when we hoard, we disconnect from the world, that we have to open our fists and let things go in order to receive or at the very least connect? Here's what I'd add to that. You just took this sorting of humans who live without homes and those who live with more than they need from exclusion to inclusion. You made them aspects of you rather than aberrant and distinct from you. Well, that's a very good first step. So a good first step, Keeper, and sorry, we're at the top of our time together. It feels like it took us a long time to get here. What else could you add for our listeners at this point? 
Well, I understand that no one wants to be living on the street, perhaps fearing for his or her life. I understand also that with so much food on the planet, you want not only to have food to eat, but you want to choose what you eat. You're in love with the things of this world because it's only the blink of an eye that any of you have had these things. Not long ago, you were migrating to escape a climate event that would surely bring humanity to extinction if you hadn't migrated. You left your shelters and tribes and had to fight at every level just to survive. When possible, you depended on the generosity and compassion of strangers. If that didn't exist, you took what you wanted or needed. This is modeled for you in the polarities we talked about today. So let me ask, where on the spectrum do you fall? Where do you want to be? What model would create a more compassionate and sustainable world for you? I'm struck by inclusion rather than exclusion. We're still judging what normal human behavior is and what's aberrant and excluding what's aberrant rather than including it as part of human behavior and choosing what we value and what to model. Boy, that feels really simplistic and it's not that easy. For example, when you were citing the statistics about the homeless earlier, that alone. You are firmly entrenched in your stories and it will take time to rewrite them. So here's a question for you. What if you were the generation that awakens and not the generation that resolves it all? Truthfully, it's a tough one to accept. Why? Why must you do it all? Because we should be able to resolve all this. Again, why? Because you're so evolved? You realize there are more steps on the evolutionary ladder. You just can't see them yet. Now, you certainly can't sit back and pout or hide. You must do your part. You know, and you can't unknow, remember? What you get to do now is choose. Expecting to do it all? That's a huge burden, Jeff. Although I have to say it expresses that chief feature of impatience that we've talked about. It does, doesn't it? You know, I guess I just hope for more, Keeper. I expected more of us. Well, keep hoping, Jeff. Keep expecting more and keep choosing. This isn't an easy conversation. These conversations often require a huge shift in perspective, although that's why we're having them, isn't it? Yeah, it, it seems so. Let me sign off here, Keeper, and thank you again for your perspective on things. And for our listeners, thank you for being here. And I hope that you take away something from each of these conversations that, that shifts your perspective about your stories or how you would see the world. I know that's what's happening for me in all of these conversations. We'll be back next month with another conversation with the Keeper of Souls Purpose. Until then, please visit our website at www.thevoiceofevolution.com and our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Voice of Evolution Radio. Keep having those conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate. I'm Jeff Hendler with Voice of Evolution radio producer Linda Lombardo signing off for today. Until next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.